So Kim mentioned last week um, at the beginning of his message, maybe you remember, that Pastor Tom had assigned some of us a series of theological topics to preach on in the coming uh, weeks and months. So Kim last week spoke on creation, and my assigned subject is the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Now, um, I was supposed to preach. Here's the thing. I was supposed to preach in early March, and so I had done a fair amount of preparation, and then I I got sick and and couldn't preach. Kim preached on my behalf, which I thank him for. Um, But my plan at that time was to preach from Psalm 119, and I had done a a fair amount of preparation. And so today, I'm going to mush together those two things, the topic of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture and Psalm 119. Now, you would be uh, correct in thinking that generally that's a bad strategy for for preaching. Uh, It's not good good hermeneutics to have a topic and then uh, pick a passage and and just make it work. But I propose, I propose, and if you have spent any time in Psalm 119 recently, that there's no better part of Scripture to go to when you want to think about God's Word than Psalm 119. I hope that you'll see this this morning. Psalm 119 makes what is certainly the longest and is perhaps the best case for the truth that God's Word matters most, authority, and that God's Word has what we need, sufficiency. So all that to say, you can open your Bibles to Psalm 119, that's where the scripture reading was from this morning, though we're, we're not going to spend most of our time in those verses. Now I can tell by some of your uh, uh, faces that you're afraid that if my text is Psalm 119, then this is going to go really long this morning. Um, but I don't think that it will. We'll, we'll spend most of our time in just one section, which is, which is uh, verses 97 through 104. But, but you can turn to the beginning. We're going to look at that just by way of introduction. We'll go to our passage in a minute, but, but just as a sort of introduction, I want to think big picture for a couple minutes, uh, just to help orient us as we come to our passage. And I want to consider two things in that respect. First, and this will just take a minute, but first, the overall structure of the psalm, uh, which Mr. Harrison alluded to in, in his scripture reading at the beginning. Um, and then two, the two main themes of Psalm 119, and that'll take a few more minutes. So to give you a quick overview of the structure of the psalm, and hopefully you know this already, but it has 176 verses, and they're divided into 22 sections. Maybe one of the kids here can do the math really quick, how many verses per section, or you can just look down and count them, uh, the same number in each section. And the reason there are 22 sections is that there are 22 letters in the, in the ancient Hebrew alphabet. Perhaps your translation has a little header at the beginning of each section, So the psalm begins with Aleph, and then at verse 9, you might see Beit, and then verse 17, Gimel, and and so on. And maybe your Bible has a little footnote at the very beginning of the psalm explaining that the psalm is an acrostic poem with each verse in each section beginning with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So each verse in section 1 begins with the word that begins the verse begins with the letter Aleph. This is understandably lost in our English translations. I thought for a minute, how could you possibly translate uh, the English to reflect that, and I'm sure it would not work. So that's the, the overall structure. And then the psalm's major themes. 
And here's the question for you to consider, and I, and I hope a couple of you, Kim mentioned he was in Psalm 119 a little bit this morning in Sunday school in his class. I hope that a couple of you in here have been in Psalm 119 fairly recently, and so this is in the front of your mind. But, but here's the question to consider. What jumps out at you from Psalm 119? You don't have to answer out loud. This isn't Sunday school, so you can't raise your hand and answer. But even maybe just listening to the scripture reading a few minutes ago, what jumps out at you? And here's what I'm getting at. Psalm 119 is not just super long, but it is super redundant. It is incredibly and gloriously repetitive. It says the same kinds of things over and over and over. I was uh, brought to the painful reality of this maybe Six or seven years ago, I thought it'd be a great idea to memorize Psalm 119. And I got a certain number of verses in, and I gave up, because they just all kind of sounded the same. It's not a bad thing, though. Um, it's okay if you don't see this, uh, this theme from the, the 30 seconds you've spent looking at it this morning. But, but if I gave you another minute or two, here is certainly the conclusion that you would come to, by far. By far, by far, the primary focus of this psalm is God's words. Nearly every verse in Psalm 119 mentions God's words. Do you already start to see that? The psalmist uses different terms, right? The most common is word or words, and then law, commandments, testimonies, statutes, precepts, rules or judgments, promises, even ways a few times. There are a few verses that don't mention any of those terms. There are just a handful, and maybe if I lose some kids along the way this morning and they realize they're not, they're not paying attention anymore, they can go look in Psalm 119 for those verses. I counted seven, uh, but I admittedly only went through one time looking for that. To sample this, okay, to sample this, look back at the beginning of Psalm 119, which was the scripture reading. Look at how it begins, the first two sections, and I'm reading this time from the, from the ESV. Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules or judgments. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The second section, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Twice in the same verse, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Twice again. And the rest of the psalm continues in the same way. Nearly every verse, twice in some verses we just saw, God's words, what he has commanded, what he has promised, what God says, this is the unmistakable and indisputable theme of Psalm 119. Our passage begins in verse 97, if you want to flip to that. 
I'll read it now. And, and for now, just look at how it continues to emphasize God's words. It begins in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ages, for I have kept your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, through your precepts. I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Are you starting to get a sense of this? God's words. This is what matters. What could be more important than that? And and I'm I'm a little bit worried, since we've only read three of the sections in the psalm, that, that you think I'm making too much of this. And so I wish we could spend 15 minutes reading the whole thing, and you'd it would be beat into all of our heads pretty intensely. What God says surely must be the great overriding priority of human existence. Through his words, recorded for us in his word, that's how we know him. This is where God reveals himself, who he is, what he's like, what he cares about, what he wants from his creation, and what he wants from you. And everything hinges on how you are aligned with this how you respond to what God says. And that brings us to the second theme that we should notice. Nearly every verse in the psalm, in addition to mentioning God's words, nearly every one exhorts or warns or encourages us to respond in the right way. Responses like keeping God's commands, obeying. But not just that, also to long for to love, to meditate on, to delight in what God says. Bear with me. Flip back to the beginning. And let me read those first two sections again. And this time, look for this theme. All the ways that you're commanded or exhorted to respond to God's word. Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, and seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. You can see that first section almost exclusively focus on, focuses on keeping, obeying God's word. Keep going. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. There's a new one. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 
Consider how our passage begins in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Keep, obey, fix your eyes on, seek, learn, delight, love, meditate. Nearly every verse in the psalm exhorts us to respond to God's word in one of these ways, and lots more. We've only looked at a small sample of verses. And to perhaps jump ahead for a moment in the hopes of making this here on the front end more urgent and more compelling for you, to the extent that we in our hearts and in our lives are, are disposed this way toward God's word, how Psalm 119 talks about, to the extent that we are similarly prioritizing what God says above everything else, to that extent we are blessed. We are not put to shame, he says. We are wise. We have victory over sin. We have great peace and joy. We are safe. We are stable. We have life, abundant life now and eternal life to come. God's word matters most and has what we need. And conversely, to the extent that our gaze wanders from what God has said, often seemingly too important and urgent things. Think of, think of the many things that clamored for our attention over the last couple years. To the extent that our gaze wanders from what God has said, to that extent, we are idolaters. Something else has taken God's place. And the result is that we are untethered from the truth, real truth, God's reality. We're failing and falling. We become embittered and desperate. We lose our joy and peace and contentment. So I know that uh, probably was a, a bit long of an introduction, but, but the point is that I, I want to lay, hopefully, a solid foundation for us to take a closer look for the remainder of our time this morning at verses 97 through 104. And we'll see in this passage, we've already seen, the same focus on God's words. And we should consider what is the psalmist's disposition toward what God has said. And then, of course, we should consider whether these verses reflect our own attitude toward what God has said. How do these verses instruct and encourage us to respond to what God has said? <coughs> um, just to clue you in on, on the plan, we'll look at this in three parts. We'll look at verse 97 first, and we'll include um, verse 103 as part of that then verses 98 through 100, and we'll include verse 104 with that, and then verses 101 through 102. So you can keep track of our progress. So starting in verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Hopefully this verse doesn't seem to come out of nowhere now. Now the term law makes us modern readers think of, of laws, of rules, of, uh, of uh, political standards that we must abide by. Um, and that's not inaccurate. But for the ancient Jew, it was broader than this, right? The law was used to refer to the whole scope of what God had revealed and what was written down for them, much, much of which certainly was commands and laws. Here in Psalm 119, as we've already seen, the term is used interchangeably with all these other terms. And so it ultimately refers to everything God says, all his words. And the psalmist says, oh, how much I love your law. There really is an interjection, oh, in the Hebrew. Oh, how much I love your law. How much I treasure 
and cherish and delight in the things that God has said. We saw expressions like this a a little bit already in the Psalms that we've sampled, and here are a few more. So verse 14, we've already seen, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. What about verse 20? My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. And let's loop in verse 103 here from our section at this point. How sweet are your words to my mouth, to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do you feel the emotional intensity of this, for lack of a better way of saying it? It's more than intellectual assent, isn't it? It's far more than I, I know God's word is true, and so I, I must accept it. I don't always like it. Uh, it tells me things I don't want to hear, but I know it's true, and I, and I approve this message. It's, it's much, much more than that, isn't it? I love God's words. The psalmist says, I delight in them, I cling to them, I crave them like sweet honey, which was kind of the only sugar they had in the ancient world. I'm consumed with longing for God's word. I desire God's word more than I desire wealth. It's far better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Am I in danger of making too much of this, I wonder? How about verse 131? I open my mouth and pant Because I long for your commandments. I open my mouth and pant. This is intense. And the question that that comes home very quickly is, is this descriptive of my disposition toward God's word? Do you feel this way about God's word? And look how he follows this up in the rest of verse 97. He says, it is my meditation all the day. What does this mean? What what does it mean to meditate on God's words? Hopefully this isn't foreign to you. It's, of course, a step further than just reading. If we think for a moment, maybe in the context of our daily devotions, your, your daily time with God, is this time defined by meditation? Or do you... Uh, like I so often do, read your couple of chapters and check it off and, and move on. What about throughout your day? Elsewhere in the psalm, uh, the, the writer says, verse 6, which we already saw, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. That feels similar. Verse 11, I have stored up, the King James, I have hidden. I have stored up your word in my heart. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Verse 16, I will not forget your word. That seems similar. Verses 30 and 31, I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. Verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. And we could mention dozens, dozens more, dozens more. To meditate on God's words is to think about them. It's to savor them, right? It's putting God's word into your mind and and mulling it over 
setting God's word before you and fixing your eyes on it, as one verse said. More than anything else, I think what it really means is time. Time focusing on a particular bit of God's word. If this is new to you, then I'll admit that it will be difficult at first, especially maybe these days. I don't want to make a big issue of people today, but these days, uh, how how much do we stop and think about, about anything ever? But meditating on God's word, pick pick a verse, find a passage and think about it. Write it down and maybe start writing down your observations about it. What does it mean? What is God saying here? What does it tell you about God himself? Ask every question you can think of it. What's encouraging? What is difficult, perhaps? Is it true? Of course it is. It's God's word. If you read these verses uh, among unbelievers in your workplace, perhaps, what would their response be to it? What's hard about it? Do you find it easy or hard to believe in? Will it be hard to do, and why? You get the idea. Meditating means thinking deeply about and lingering long over God's word. It requires intentionally finding ways to keep God's words in the front of your mind. It's carving out time to mull over his words. Truthfully, you sacrifice other pursuits, right? You're, you're, you're stingy with your brain space. You're wary about letting other things consume your thoughts and God's words being pushed to the back burner. And, and meditating, savoring God's words in your mind and heart this way, isn't this the natural result of loving them? If you love God's words, if, it's your, if, if his words are your delight and your joy, isn't it natural to think about them? This is where your joy is. It's like sweet honey to your taste, the psalmist says. It's like finding treasure. And loving God's word is the natural result of meditating on them. How could you sink deeply into God's word, letting it dwell richly in you, and not love it evermore? I think of this as a, as a spiral. <clears throat> meditating on God's word inevitably leads to loving it. Loving God's words surely must lead to meditating on it, to storing it up in our hearts. The psalmist loves God's word like he describes, delighting in it, longing for it, rejoicing in it, because he meditates on it. And the ever-fresh delights he sees in God's word inspire him to savor God's word all the more. Oh, the wonders and delights and joys that await us here in God's word. Because this is where God is. Oh, that we would open our mouths and pant because of how much we long for God's word. That we would invest more and more time here. That our daily prayer and delight would be that of the psalmist in verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Moving on, let's take the next three verses together. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Sounds like more meditation. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Consider this result of of having God's word in you. (coughs) Loving and meditating on God's words leads to wisdom. Because God's word is ever with him, 
Because God's word are his meditation, the psalmist says, he is wise. He understands. He knows the right answers. He sees clearly. The word discretion comes to mind. In, in complex and messy situations, perhaps like the last couple of years, he can decipher what is truly true, and not true in a generic sense, but what lines up with what God says, what is right and righteous, what matters to God, and what is wrong, where the sin is. This is where wisdom and understanding come from, knowing and loving and savoring God's words, clinging to and thinking about what God says gives wisdom. Jump to verse 104, which is the last verse in the section. Through your precepts, he says, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Understanding and wisdom come through God's word. That's what we've already seen. And he says the result of this is that he hates every false way. So he sees clearly what is the right and the good way, God's way, and he sees clearly what's the wrong and sinful way. He loves God's way. He hates the wrong way. He sees, I think of this as he sees where the sin is in whatever direction. Can I ask you to flip to another passage, Proverbs 2? This is the only one outside of Psalms. It shouldn't be surprising that a discussion of wisdom takes us to Proverbs. And we could go almost anywhere in the book. But Proverbs 2, starting in verse 1, you don't have to memorize this, but, but just let what Solomon says here um, wash over you and, and fit into these same boxes. He says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek for it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. And we could just keep reading. Knowing and loving and savoring God's words gives wisdom. A clear-eyed view of God's reality an understanding of what is right and good in all the different situations that we encounter in life, uh, during life in this world. And surely the opposite is true as well. In the absence of God's words, when what God says isn't loved most and considered deeply, the result is foolishness, confusion, sin, People who ignore or reject what God says are untethered from reality. And so they assert all kinds of things, and they believe anything, and they approve everything. It's not hard to think of examples of this occurring right now all around us. But this isn't a rant about America today. Let's not make this primarily an indictment of those without God. It shouldn't be strange and bewildering to us that unbelievers don't care about what God says. But what about us? 
What about you? To the extent that what God says isn't our highest priority, and at at any given moment, our greatest delight, looming largest in our minds, dwelling richly in us, to that extent, we start to descend into foolishness, right? We begin to lose the ability to discern right and wrong. We're blind to our own wandering, our own sin. Don't we see that? We start to lose our tether to God's reality. We begin declaring things that aren't exactly biblical. Initially, things that probably sound pretty good, but just aren't things that God has actually said. At heart, we become idolaters. Something else has taken the place of God and his words as our chief love and priority. What God says what God has actually said in his word, no longer consumes our thoughts and our affections. Other loves, other slogans, other causes take God's place. Back to verses 98 through 100, 100, the the writer says, not just that God's word has made him wise, but he says, wiser. And first he says he becomes wiser, he has become wiser than his enemies, And we've already touched on how those who reject God and and oppose him are foolish and untethered from reality, destined to fail. It's not particularly surprising that we would be wiser than those people. But it's not just those without God whom the psalmist is wiser than. He has more understanding, he says, than both his teachers and the aged, the elders, the ancients. Now that sounds proud, doesn't it? I mean, if I stood up here and said that. Well, I think we get the idea from this that the psalmist is, is on the younger end of things, um, probably not particularly long, young, but he, he has teachers, or he did in the, recent, in the recent past. He also refers to his elders. He had teachers and older people in authority over him. And at first glance, I, I think we can say that it, it's a little bit troubling for him to claim to be wiser than his teachers and his elders. And so this gets to the conclusion of my message that I'm wiser than Pastor Tom Let's pray. <laughs> Obviously, I'm joking. Uh, go to Pastor Tom for advice. Don't come to me. Obviously, these verses are not a justification for rejecting our authorities, disrespecting our elders, or, or for the notion that students should teach the teachers. They inherently know better. The younger are inherently wiser than the older. That's not the point. <clears throat> Certainly, the point is this. Authority and experience, and education, and age are no guarantee of wisdom. Wisdom comes from God's word. That's what we just said. Wisdom comes from meditating on what God says. And the point is that there's no substitute for that. No amount of education can take the place of meditating on God's word. No PhD in whatever topic, no seminary education can take the place of meditating on God's word. No amount of life experience guarantees wisdom. That's why we have the, the, the stereotype of the old fool, right? That sad picture of somebody who's old and foolish. It shouldn't be that way. Spiritual maturity is not suddenly bestowed at age 50 or 70 or 90. Positions of authority don't come with a side of wisdom. Wisdom doesn't suddenly arrive when you're asked to teach a Sunday school class or appointed a deacon or an elder. Authority, experience, education, and age are no guarantee of wisdom. 
nor our career success or wealth or respect out in the world. Wisdom comes from one thing, meditating on God's words. He who lingers longest with God's word is wisest. Almost. But you might notice that I left out one phrase. I haven't talked about one phrase in verses 98 through 100. He says, um, it ends, it's the end of verse 100. The psalmist says, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. So far, we had loving God's word and meditating on it, multiple mentions of meditating on it, but now we have keep. And this marks a shift in the focus of our section. Let's consider this together with verses 101 and 102, which say, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Keep your precepts. Hold back my feet from every evil way. Keep your word. Do not turn aside from your rules. This, to me, at least, sounds like much the same thing. It all sounds like obedience. Keeping God's words following them, not turning aside from what God says, not sinning, but obeying. Two sides of the same coin. I I go this way, not that way. I don't depart from God's word, but I keep it. We saw much of this exact language in the first few verses of the psalm, right? The first section is kind of all about obedience. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, sounds like obedience, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. And I won't read the rest. Exhortations to obey God's word surely aren't surprising, right? This is Christianity 101, obey. But what strikes me here and from Psalm 119 overall is how these exhortations to obey are used almost interchangeably with commands to love and meditate. Even right here in verses 99 and 100, look at, look at those verses. Look how parallel they are. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ages, for I keep your precepts. We should see a very close connection, an unbreakable bond, if you will, between loving what God says and meditating on what God says. I've already talked about that. And now obeying what God says. I already proposed that loving God's words means you want to think about them and and savor them, and meditating on God's words certainly leads to loving them, and now I want to loop in obeying, meditating on God's words, treasuring them, savoring what God says and clinging to it must certainly lead to obeying it. And in case you thought I was inventing this myself, if you're Not quite sure that that's true. Look at verse 11, which is a candidate for the best-known verse in Psalm 119. Your word have I hid in my heart. That's the King James, that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart. I treasure what God says. I hold on to it. That's meditating. And the purpose of this, the result, that I wouldn't sin. And so here's the point. The path to obedience The path to victory over sin runs through God's word. The secret, which is a terrible way to phrase something, but the secret to obedience, to victory over sin, is loving and clinging to and meditating on and savoring God's words. 
Verse 9 says much, much the same. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can he cleanse his way? By guarding it, by taking heed according to your word. And so we have this spiral of loving what God says and meditating on what God says and obeying what God says. Those who love God's words, store them up and savor them. Those who love and savor God's words, obey them. Those who meditate on God's words, love them all the more. Those who obey what God says, love him all the more. Which is preeminent? Loving, meditating, obeying? Which comes first? Which, which leads to which? Yes, to all. And so that's it. We've touched on every verse in our passage uh, and a whole bunch more throughout the whole psalm. Psalm 119 is all about God's words, and it is gloriously repetitive. Your homework is to go spend the next two months in Psalm 119. Every verse in the psalm focuses on God's word, and most of those verses exhort us to love what God says and to meditate on it and to follow it. And let me end with, with an encouragement. What's the result of all of this? This, I'd say, is the third theme. If I had to pick a third one for Psalm 119, it would be this. What results for the person who loves and meditates on and obeys God's words? What is promised to someone who prioritizes God's word in this way? What does God promise? In our passage this morning, we already saw wisdom. But what else is here in the psalm? Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2 as well, blessed are those who keep his testimony. And blessed is a good Bible word that, that one of those classic ones probably goes in one ear and out the other and we move on. But blessed is the Bible word for the best possible thing. God's blessing, God's favor, the life that God means for you to have. Verse 6 then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. There are at least a dozen verses talking about not being put to shame. I think of this as safety and stability, no shame, vindication. Verse 45, this is an interesting picture. I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Verses 50 and 52, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Verse 52, when I think on your rules from of old, I take comfort. Comfort results from loving and meditating and obeying God's word. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And there are also dozens of verses that talk about life in this way. And then I'll end with what was my favorite verse for the last week, Psalm uh, 119, 165, 165. Great peace. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can offend them, make them stumble. Great peace. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time this morning, these few minutes when we can turn our gaze to your word, and I pray that you would begin and continue that good work in our hearts of making us 
love what you say most of all and get it stuck deep in our minds and that we would be motivated and empowered to obey it. And we trust that all good things, everything that you mean for us here in life on this earth will, will happen and be accomplished through our commitment to your word over time. In Jesus' name, amen.